everyone, and welcome to Legend of Portalcast, a podcast dedicated to Avatar The Last Airbender, The Legend of Korra, and all things Avatar. I am Colin, your main host. I'm joined today by Kevin. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having me, Colin. Yes. Uh, how are you? How have you been? How has your week been? Whew, uh, not too bad. It was uh, Work was crazy, uh, but as usual, Avatar is uh, keeping helping me uh, aptly enough keep balance. <laughs> it is it is truly a calming salve uh, uh, when you need it most. I, I don't know about you, man, but like I I sometimes forget about like just putting an episode on, and then I like put one on, and I'm like, oh, this is so nice, and I just feel so much better after watching it. <laughs> Whether it's Avatar Korra. I completely agree. All right. Well, welcome back, folks. Um, we are continuing our journey through book two of Legend of Korra today. Um, we had a <laughs> hell of a journey with beginnings. Uh, <laughs> now that we're on the other side of that, we are continuing on. And now we are back to the adventures of Korra and the crew. So today we're going to be reviewing episode nine from book two, The Guide. And... This is this is a pretty this is a pretty interesting episode. We've had a lot of kind of build up to it, um, but because we have been gone from the Korra and that world storyline, gonna do just a quick recap of kind of what happens, uh, what has happened up to this point to bring us up to speed with where all these characters are at. So first and foremost, Korra learned about harmonic convergence and is on her way back with a flying bison. That was pretty much what we got from beginnings. But on the other side of things, Varric saved Asami's company, but Mako discovered that along with instigating the war, Varric stole via the triple threat triads the very future industry's products he was supposed to protect and forced Asami's hand without her knowing the truth. And lastly, Tenzin is with the kids at the Eastern Air Temple along with his brother and sister, Boomy and Kaya. So before we kind of get into episode discussion, um, in case folks haven't had a chance to uh, swing by either our social media or our Discord, which you can find links on in our show notes, um, it wasn't really addressed in the episode that uh, I shared last week because, again, uh, we recorded it back in December. But as I'm sure you all know, my goodness, Avatar Studios. Um, we have a whole lot to have said about it. We did a whole live stream discussion, uh, which you can also find as well. I'll include in the show notes uh, to kind of watch the video of it. Uh, but I'm currently uh, editing through that right now as well. That's going to be released as a special uh, podcast uh, episode. So be on the lookout for that. We have a lot to say. There was a lot of fun discussion, a lot of fun theorizing, and we have a lot to look forward to. So be sure to check that out and we'll be talking about that more, releasing news updates as they come out. Even though we're going to be releasing uh, kind of less frequently than we typically do, if there is a news update regarding Avatar Studios, we're probably going to be releasing shorter episodes just as a news update on the podcast feed. Uh, won't be a full length episode discussion, but at least kind of like a little short mini-sode to keep you guys up to date. Um, and hear our thoughts on this news. So, without any further ado, we have our recap. We have our episode to get into. Let's dive in. We begin this episode where we see Janora playing with spirits. And as it cuts to Tenzin's perspective, there's nothing there. It's a really wonderful kind of uh, perspective shift because we see Janora laughing, have all of these spirits flying around her, and then it just is this quick cut over to Tenzin, and then there's nothing around her. And immediately, this establishes the difference that's going to echo throughout the rest of this episode. And I, I, I just, I love that we get this moment too, uh, where it's like a sense of mystery about why these spirits are here, why Tenzin can't see them, and why Janora is able to kind of see them and play with them. Yeah, such a quick way to do it with, uh, you know, the quote-unquote camera work. But it's the implications, as you said, are so deep. So Tenzin excitedly tells uh, his kids about touring the ancient parts of the temple 
and the kids don't seem super thrilled. <laughs> he keeps saying, we're going to see ancient ruins, ancient airbending meditation sites, ancient... And they're just like looking at him like any kid looks at a parent when they're telling them, oh man, we're going to look at all of these old historical things, <laughs> which as an adult, you're like, this is so cool. But as a kid, you're just like, no, I just want to, I just want to play my Game Boy or I guess in now times, I just want to play Fortnite. I don't <laughs> care about these things. <laughs> but the kids are saved from this uh, boring retreat, uh, reprieve when Cora arrives. Um, she was only able to find them thanks to Tenzin's itinerary. I wrote this in my notes that I felt this in my bones because <laughs> I do love kind of putting together stuff like this. And I love that Tenzin is like, see, this is why, this is why planning is important. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Any moment to validate his like <laughs> clear <laughs> OCD with all of this planning with everything. <laughs> It's uh, it's so funny that you said because like yeah this whole episode with his planning of things like this this is the one that went right it's nice yes <laughs> um so turns out Tenzin and the group knows absolutely nothing about the civil war and Cora proceeds to fill them in uh, I I wrote this quote down specifically because it's so funny because they're asking her Cora tell us everything she's like uh, okay everything. And then it's this beautiful, like, comedic moment where she just takes this big breath in and she says, quote, I opened a spirit portal at the South Pole, but then Unalak turned out to be a bad guy. I wanted to take control of the South, so I sort of started a civil war. But when I went to find some help, I was attacked by my cousins and then by a giant dark spirit. And then I forgot who I was, and then I met the first Avatar, and then I realized I shouldn't have opened the portal in the first place, and now I need to close it again. <laughs> It's such a beautiful, uh, beautifully succinct way to uh, bring us up to speed of where we're at. Yeah, she did all the work for us. And the whole time that she's saying this, everyone is just looking baffled. But then Tenzin declares that he knew this would happen. Again, a very important line that plays into Tenzin's character, his choices, and how he views himself, which is confronted by the end of this episode. It it is also kind of this moment where he is saying, look, I called this. I was paranoid at the beginning of the season for a very good reason. And look where we are now. He's, he's, he's definitely, there's a little bit of salt that comes <laughs> from, uh, from, from Tenzin here. He's got some pent up feelings, clearly a little, he's got a little bit of that, uh, um, like a little bit of that, uh, like stewing that reminds me a little bit of that uh you know uh not necessarily letting things go uh to a degree that we sometimes see from both Qatar and Ang frankly in the first season That's as true. well but I just like it was Tenzin's moment of like there wouldn't have been a civil war if you had listened to me <laughs> so Cora and Tenzin chat in the garden and Tenzin in this moment is very level-headed he is immediately uh, he understands the objective but most importantly, he tells Cora that it is not her fault. Especially when Cora says, well, this is all my fault. And immediately, Tenzin's like, no, this is Unalak's fault. Which I, I highlighted this moment because it is incredibly important. What is going to happen later in this season and what happens with Cora and Rava and the Avatar cycle, and how that all shakes down, I think that this is, we're hearing this over and over again. And again, we, we, we see a lot of sometimes this blame and this frustration and anger that some people show towards Korra. Again, I think this is like shouting out directly to those individuals. It is not her fault. This is so much of Unalak. And this is so much of the way that he was manufacturing a lot of this. But because Cora believes that it was her fault, sometimes viewers along as well will also believe that as well. Honestly, I thought it was just a great... Uh, I, I loved his emotional intelligence from Tenzin to Cora because like, despite all the frustrations, it's still like, no, you're still my student. You know, I'm still here to care for you. Um, and also just a great life moment 
remember, folks, sometimes it, it, almost all the time, isn't your fault, probably. It was probably some jerk yeah. trying to release something from the spirit world. Yeah, a- absolutely. It, it's really, it really is this moment of Tenzin being there for Korra. And even though he had his moment yeah. <laughs> where he says, I knew this yeah. would happen, he doesn't continually, like, rub that in, but he does say his yeah. piece. So <laughs> he's like, all right, I said all my right. piece. I said that I knew this happened. Now let's get to it. Um, so Cora's idea to close the southern portal is to bypass Unalak's forces in the south and to go through the spirit world and close the portal from the inside. And we get this moment where Tenzin is like filled with pride. And he says that of all of his years of spiritual training has led to this. And that today they will enter the spirit world. So I want to break down this kind of first section here that we went over. And a few things to kind of discuss is, uh, again, establishing Tenzin's character for the story of these episodes reinforcing to Korra that it's not her fault and the idea of all of your training leading to a single moment and expectations versus reality. So what are, what are some of your thoughts kind of going into this, Kevin? I, I don't want to go like knowing what happens in the rest of the episode and the season, what goes on, but it's that uh, it almost kind of like, it, like it's a little twingy for me to like, be like, Oh man, he thinks, he's the whole reason why this is all going to work out that everything he does he like he's all knowing he he can see the future he can solve it by his own hands and that is how he's going to get through this crisis and that's and that's the only way he can see doing it that he doesn't you know i i look forward to when we talk about the rest of the episode and his uh trusting of others that it isn't just him yeah or just cora it, and i think yeah, and I mean, I think a lot of it, too, we have to remember as we continue on through this episode and this season and just in Tenzin's character journey as a whole, we have to realize how much of his expectations and perspectives of himself has truly been shaped not only by Aang, but also the perspective of the rest of the world seeing him as Aang's mm-hmm. son and seeing him as the lone airbender yep. leader. Yeah, exactly. It's like, yeah, you can almost see all the the, eye, like, the eyes are on him, which they probably are, but he also feels it and feels that all the eyes are on him. And it's this expectation of knowing, well, when, when the world needed my father the most, he... he was able to end the hundred years of war. Well, when they were, the world needed him most, he didn't show. Well, that's, that's be, true. He did run away. <laughs> there was that time. <laughs> <laughs> but when, you know, when push came to shove and when he came out of the iceberg and really had to face the challenges that he did in the original series, Ang helped save the world. And it's again, this expectation of, okay, here it is. The stakes have never been higher. And I, I think that that's like, that's the really interesting part is that you know, we don't really get to see Korra sit with this a lot. I don't think that it's necessarily a bad thing because, again, she had a whole Sky Bison ride back from uh, the uh, where she was with the Shaman to kind of sit and stew with this. And by the time she gets to the Eastern Air Temple, she's ready to act on it. But again, we have to realize and think about the gravity of this situation and hearing about this. Korra seeing it firsthand through these visions of Wan, but then Tenzin hearing that, okay, hey, by the way, this is the potential like end of the world as we know it if we fail. This isn't just things kind of going out of balance and one nation taking over, which, you know, could be bad. If the Fire Nation succeeds, yes, it's going to be it's going to be rough. But that is at least like a nation succeeding. And there's like a potential for change after that. If Vatu succeeds, we're talking about a world that doesn't really come back for another 10,000 years. That's true. It's a literal opening of Pandora's box. 
So again, it's this idea of this training leading to a single moment and expectations versus reality. I, I don't know. I mean, have you had anything kind of like close to that in your own life that you feel you've had like a lot of like either training for or you feel like you've done a lot with and then suddenly it's kind of like you're coming to a head with that moment? Oh boy, that's a deep question. Um, I've had those times where it's like, you know, where you definitely feel like it's the right time, the right place. And you would like kind of like, like for me and my job, like often it happens uh, with radiation where like something's happening. And in that, that moment you have like, I've got a split second and I need to do this right now. And I know exactly what to do. And it's like, it almost like just all of a sudden you're training and thoughts just like your instincts kick in and you take care of everything. And usually it's okay. It's almost always okay. But it's one of those where you're just like, oh man, it's a good thing I spent a lot of money on all that education for <laughs> for this moment. Um, <laughs> or even like, you know, last year, like, uh, I mean, we only got bronze, but, you know, going to club nationals and curling and be like, oh, okay. So like, you know, all this, like these years of like me trying to be better and getting fit, like all kind of came to a head. And then it was that like reinforcement from there of like, oh, good. I can do this. I can accomplish these things. Let's go to the next thing. Um I didn't even look at Cora. I mean, Cora, I mean, the season one took care of a lot of shit. <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but and now Tenz, and Tenzin, while like he kind of guided, like this one now directly relates to the spirit realm. And he, as we know, definitely feels himself very spiritual, very, you know, attuned with the spirits. So like he thinks that he is the, like, this is his moment because it's like, oh, this is everything I've done with da- his dad, everything he's done on the console being, you know, an airbender, um, like the like it does seem tailor-made for him yeah absolutely and again it's this as we discussed earlier it's this idea of knowing that he is ang's son knowing that so many of these so much of the training that ang passed down with uh being an airbender being a spiritual leader being a spiritual guide this is what he has dedicated so much of his life to what he has sacrificed a lot for as well no pressure yeah no pressure right (laughs) (laughs) so we cut to unalak and the twins eska and desna entering the southern portal unalak tells them that it is time for them to kind of take things into their own hands but he is disappointed in them because he talks about their failure of capturing the avatar and Desna is like, look, I told you it wasn't our fault. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's like, yeah, there was literally a giant spirit that swallowed her whole. They did a pretty good job of getting her, you know, to that point. But there's not much you can do against that. But in the eyes of Unalak, failure is failure. Jerk. So as they step through, we see the very space where Juan fought Vatu and where Vatu was imprisoned that now Unalak has brought his two children leading us into uh, a very tense moment but of course in true Avatar fashion we cut to (laughs) Bolin screaming (laughs) (laughs) he is hanging upside down clearly on the set of Nuktuk And as uh, we hear the sounds of the crew say cut, everyone legit just leaves. (laughs) Nobody helps Bolin. Oh, Bolin. (laughs) And, you know, everyone goes off to lunch. Bolin is just left hanging there, Um, which is clearly something that was a a very deliberate choice. Because, look, when I've worked on film set, like... If you do not have someone who is t- helping take care of the talent, uh, you're you're doing it very wrong. <laughs> like that's the la- that's usually the first thing that you take care <laughs> of. <laughs> um, Mako and Asami arrive, and uh, Mako tells them what he has discovered. He kind of lays out all of the facts of what he has uh, found out to this point. Asami doesn't want to believe it. Bolin can't believe it. And it is this moment where Mako has found out all of this information and he is trying to express what he has discovered. But 
how much that Varric has truly won over Bolin and Asami to this point and makes Mako seem like this outsider, despite their previous and present connections. And we get this great line where <laughs> Asami says, Mako, you seem stressed. And he just snaps, I am stressed. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, I understand his frustrations because he wants to try and communicate this. But the way he erupts is very much the firebender in him. <laughs> it's It felt like a very Zuko adjacent moment where <laughs> I think back in the old series, Zuko says, I am yeah. calm. <laughs> I was just thinking, I'm like, yeah, that, that was a great, great reference by you. <laughs> you know, and it's it, it is this... Uh, you know, I, I think that that's something that Mike and Brian have established very much with a lot of the benders in this world is that there are certain personality traits. It's not always cut and dry with, you know, certain personality traits always line up. But when that happens, we clearly see this is very much a firebender uh, reaction to the situation. He's getting stewed. He has been he has like this fire burden about all of the facts that he has discovered and he wants to let it out. And when he has everything kind of turned against him. He kind of gets frustrated. So Asami comforts Mako and Bolin is here to spill the tea because <laughs> it's like Asami like sidles up to him. Bolin's eyes just go wide and he's like looking and he's like, you, you and Asami are back together. Cora just left a week ago. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, it, it's. I'm glad that we do get this moment from Bolin where he's like, dude, Cora literally just left a week ago. You just broke up. Like, come on, man. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> uh, just has to. He always has to make it complicated. And uh, long story short, from the scene is they don't believe Mako, and Bolin is just stressing for him to just let it go. He, they think that he is just kind of too worked up about this. And so Mako leaves, and he is then confronted by two of Varric's goons. Uh, I, I wanted to just take a quick moment to kind of discuss this wonderful trope of the lone detective and when no one believes them. We've seen this in countless like true crime stories and stuff like that. And I love that they kind of put this in here with Mako, because it's a wonderful subplot for this episode. I'm with you. I, I'm definitely enjoying the the fact that there is these detective things going on in Republic City, and if and when the the higher ups at Paramount Plus listen to you and get us that uh that little movie or, or mini series about a detective thing going on in Republic City, I'm all in. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, in, in our in our Discord, uh, as when Avatar Studios came out, and we were all. Uh, just geeking out about it and freaking out about it. Susan brought up this idea of, can you imagine a CSI with waterbenders trained in <laughs> bloodbending, but it had to be certified and regulated? Or, you know, this idea of just kind of like, uh, she said, solving a murder where a bullet is used, but there are no markings to match a gun. So you have to find the potential bender for the murder. Ugh, oh, my goodness. It's just, there's, there's so many cool things. And I think that um, some like detective style stories in Republic city um, and having like a crime drama uh, set in Republic city would be super interesting because you have a lot of cool politics that you can work with. But then the idea of the uh, different like gangs with the triple threats, you know, you have, you have so yeah, much. Potential. It's an, and it's like the almost perfect uh, like in my mind, like timeline for like a good film noir kind of a thing. Like it's like yes, it is like absolutely built for it. The more I thought about it, and when you brought it up here, I'm like, oh man, it. I do like that they bring in these kind of things with him, and and with Mako, they get to have a little bit of fun with a detective, you know, like a a, mo a very modern feeling thing in a you know, in the world of bending. Yes, absolutely. So continuing on, we go back to the Eastern Air Temple where we get a nice moment where Tenzin shows Korra where Aang met with Guru Patik because they're talking about going to some meditation sites. And I, I like this. It's a short but sweet callback. And again, we've discussed this many times over, that Korra does not ever get heavy-handed with this kind of, hey, remember the old series? Remember when that happened? 
we get these brief little moments like this. And I think that in this case, it's very much, hey, they are looking to connect with the spirit world, connect with a very spiritual moment for the Avatar. It makes sense that he would kind of nod this because this is clearly a story that Korra's heard. She heard all of these different tales about the Avatar. But I I would be very interested to hear or know if Korra knows kind of that full story of Aang stepping away in that moment to abandon that seventh chakra to go and save Katara and letting that being the motivating factor. I would assume so, but again, it's like it was this very personal moment for Aang, and I wonder how much was perhaps omitted. Uh, that's true. But I do like, like you said, it's like in a, it's a very fitting part of the storyline where they could be like, oh, this would make sense. We have this air temple and he's doing spiritual things with Korra. Perfect. This, it, it's not artificial. So we, uh, we cut to this meditation happening <laughs> and we see Milo is banging a bell and Iki is airbending through a horn as Korra and Tenzin meditate. When uh, we kind of get this like cut back and forth between Korra and Tenzin, the dramatic music is swelling. And when Korra asks Tenzin if they're in the spirit world, Tenzin snaps a little bit. And then he's just like, well, if Milo was actually banging the bell at the proper intervals, we wouldn't have a problem. And he gets up and leaves. And Milo is like, oh, was I doing it wrong? Oh. <laughs> It's like so. It's like oh, Milo. I know. And then I, I'm so glad that we have Cora say, "I thought your bell ringing was great." And then Milo, in pure kid fashion, just like dar, 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 <laughs> just starts banging on the bell. <laughs> and then we go to the cliff. Cora sets up, or sorry, Kaya uh, sets up incense that then incenses Tenzin. <laughs> I was very happy with this wordplay as I was typing up my notes. <laughs> Um, you know, again, it's this setup of a meditation ritual and it, again, doesn't result to Tenzin and Korra going into the spirit world. Tenzin gets upset. But as they walk off, Jinora sees the spirits once again. They are flying around Korra before going off into the trees. And she kind of calls after them. And Kaya is like, hey, Jinora, what are you chasing? And Janora's just like, oh, nothing. And Kaya has this look of like, hmm. And this is where we see Kaya's uh, aunt senses are tingling. And she's like, hmm. Hmm. My niece, there's something amiss. I must investigate. <laughs> <laughs> then we go back to Tenzin and Korra now meditating in front of a statue. As they are meditating and he is telling her to focus and to center herself Cora is kind of going back and forth and Tenzin now snaps at her and Cora calls him out she's like all right first you snapped at Milo then you snapped at Kaya and now like you're mad at me like what is going on dude and she suggests why don't we try to go into the spirit world the first way you got in and this is when Tenzin reveals that he has never been and we cut to <laughs> Cora's reaction. We see the whole family popping out from behind an archway, Scooby-Doo style, <laughs> with shocked faces. <laughs> oh, I love when they I love when they toss in the the fun the fun stuff with the serious stuff. <laughs> it's so wonderful because uh, I I shared this in our Discord, but I'm going to be sharing it on social media. It's such a wonderful collection of faces because you see like. Kaya and Boomy are looking like dumbfounded. Like Milo's just like, <gasps> same with Iki. Uh, and we even see Pokey kind of with like a like a tilted head. But we even see uh, Rowan as well. The baby is just like looking on. <laughs> it's so wonderful. Um, and as uh, it clearly is kind of a cut to commercial break for this moment, uh, we come back and Tenzin further confesses that his inability inability to enter the spirit world is one of his greatest shortcomings as he says as an airbender a spiritual leader and as the son of ang and of course leave it to boomy say welcome to the i disappointed dad oh Club. man it was it was just so good 
He's so good at just rubbing the salt in that. Wound. Oh, and that that was such a that was such a stinger too. Where it's like, oh, it's so yeah. true, but oof. And as they're kind of debating next steps of what to do, how to proceed, and constantly Cora's just like, hey, look, I don't mean to uh, say we don't have any time, but we don't have any time. <laughs> like, this is going to be happening very soon. And as this is all happening, Kaya steps in and asks Jinora if she wants to show them something. Tenzin questions this. Even says she is too young and unlearned to do this. Which I will say, Tenzin, you see how much your daughter is reading books all the time. Yeah. (laughs) And it it is this very classic moment of the father who doesn't see how grown up his daughter really is. Jinora ushers the spirits forward saying it's okay to come out. And we see the dragonfly bunny spirits as everyone looks on in awe. And I love that we got this beautiful, like, epic aunt moment from Kaya here because she is just, like, so supportive. She sees that Jinora is having this moment, but also sees that it's a difficult situation because Tenzin is being a little bit of a crab. <laughs> and, you know, when you kind of see that your brother is being a crab and that your niece is a little bit scared to speak up because it's their dad, and, you know, this is the moment for you know, an aunt or an uncle to kind of step in to be able to have that presence. And I love that we got that moment. I like that Kaya was was looking for it and paying attention to it and being receptive to what Janora was doing versus Tenzin, who just has this vision of what should happen. And so isn't really, you know, ironically, as an airbender, not really like, I guess, taking in the surroundings of like what she's doing and what she can offer. That's such a good point. It, it really is so much of Kaya like being present in that moment and in a lot of these moments to really see what is happening and to be able to kind of act on there. And I think that that, again, it's 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 wonderful little character development for Kaya in, in this moment, but it's kind of through the plot and through ushering Jinora to kind of speak up. And that is how you do character development for, like, minor characters. You have them have these moments through the major plot points, be able to kind of showcase what it is that makes their character who they are. So to kind of break down some of what we just went through, I want to discuss a couple things. First and foremost is Tenzin's difficulty accepting his shortcoming, uh, admitting the shortcoming to everyone. And again, realizing that his life's purpose has led him to a moment where he can't fulfill it. Um, And I I don't know, what what are some of your thoughts kind of as we went through this kind of sequence of scenes where they're trying to enter the spirit world, Tenzin getting frustrated and constantly kind of snapping out at people when clearly the person that he's angry with and upset with is himself. And that is a great way to put it. it. I love the marrying of him and Korra, essentially, at this point, which is that each of them feels that they're failing um, and need you know, to help others and do what they need to do. But it was one of those things where, and I, this took me longer than I'd like to admit to learn in you know, life management and all that, which is that sometimes we're not the only ones that, you know, it's not up to us to do it all. Like, and, and if you're setting that expectation, like Tenzin's expectation is, okay, this involves spirits, therefore it can only involve me because I've done all this training. And like he, in his head, he, he probably even feels like at some point in his life, he was going to do something like this for, with Korra. Maybe not in this kind of an urgent situation, but something. Um, so now to, you know, he views it as a failure that he can't do it, but ultimately him learning from Aang and all his past training and, you know, bringing that down to his uh, children, especially in Jinora, that he is still fulfilling that mission, but it, just not in the way that he envisioned. And sometimes, and I feel like that's one of the more interesting, um, I don't know, I guess it probably is a trope of some sort, um, where the person realizes that it's just not their destiny to be the one that basically like swings the hammer here, but they're going to teach the next person how to do it. And all his training isn't for naught, it's just not him that's going to be doing it in the end. Mm, very well said. I and I really like how you put it with the idea that understanding that it isn't your time. And again, it's this expectation versus reality. Kind of having Tenzin having this vision 
for what he expects versus recognizing what is needed in the moment. And, you know, it's fair to say that many of us have been there where we kind of believe that there is this, okay, if this is what is being called on to do, then, you know, hey, look, I've got kind of the expertise for it with everything. But understanding that it's not necessarily your fight to fight or your kind of time to be able to kind of tell these stories or be able to, you know, address certain things. And I think what you brought up about knowing when to kind of pass the torch or to step aside and let others go in and do that, it, it, it really is a an exercise of humility, but also a recognition of placing importance on others and recognizing when it is their time and their time for an opportunity. But I think there's a lot of emotions tied up with this as well, because I think, again, when it's a father-daughter relationship, there's a sense of protection. And with Tenzin, it's even more so. We know that because these kids are the only airbenders who are going to kind of pass on this tradition, he's hyper-protective, even more so than I think a father would be. So you understand to a degree, but again, I love that you brought it up and that we hear this throughout the rest of the episode, the idea of destiny. And we'll kind of get into this. Oh, I was just hoping you would use that word. (laughs) Uh, So as we go back, Unalak and the kids attempt to waterbend the portal. And in this moment, we see how far Unalak has fallen. When Desna is knocked backwards from a spiritual blast in reaction to them waterbending the portal, and severely hurt, Unalak says that opening the portal is more important. Eska is like, he needs a healer. We need to go. And Unalak says, this is more important. And we see Eska look back. Oh, that look. And then looks to her brother. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> Eska carries him away as Unalak continues, not even looking back, unsuccessfully going at this portal, trying all of these different things, but in the end, failing. And it is this kind of moment. It's a great villain moment where we see that the villain has just abandoned what you would normally think would ground them, what you would think uh, they would use as a way to anchor them uh, to this uh, world. And I think in Unalak's case, again, it's very much... This he because he has kind of made this deal with Vatu because he has aligned himself with that. He has really abandoned humanity in this moment. Oh, I, I like that he abandoned humanity and his humanity. Oh, that's and well, I mean, we see that more and more and in a big way uh, towards the end of this season. So back in Republic City, Mako is brought before Varric in a room with hot coals, <laughs> and I love that Mako is just like you can't intimidate me. Just like you know, I I can't. You're not gonna. You're not gonna have me worry about this. And Varric is like the only thing I'm concerned about is this fungus growing on my foot. <laughs> and again, it's this. It, it it is this wonderful, uh, example of how Varric has been able to succeed so well, because even though he is in a place that is clearly has like a sense of intimidation, he's brought in by these two goons. Varric diffuses it with a quick wit. And it, it is this sense that he is constantly dictating the energy and kind of the flow of like how everyone is feeling in the room. That is his greatest strength, is that he can kind of manipulate emotions and really set the tone for when people enter a room. But... Mako is very headstrong. And Varric starts off with the smooth with the smooth talking, insinuating that he knows that Mako knows about what's really going on. And he has this great line, I think that you know, that I know, that you know. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it was like Varric's like last bit of jokiness before Varric t- goes to that like that darker Varric side. Yeah, well, it's also, it's a great way of just even, even though wiretapping isn't really a thing, 
it's like it's him like <laughs> saying all of these the things without implicating himself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and he, after saying this, offers Mako a job on his security force. Uh, and he kind of says, "Look, I, I don't know what could happen to Asami and Bolin if you don't take the job. That you wouldn't be there to protect them." And clearly, this is. Varric saying, you know, something's going to happen to them if you don't play ball with me here. And Mako refuses. And I I think it's this really, really great moment for Mako because he is not intimidated and he is sticking to his, he's sticking to his guns here. And I I think that it is kind of the stubbornness, which we'll kind of get into with everything a little bit uh, later here. But I, I think it's a very powerful character moment for Mako to refuse this job and to stick to the task at hand. I agree. It, it's so fitting with everything he's been doing this season, which is that he has a path. He's going to go on this path and nothing's going to stop him. So back with Korra and friends, the group rides a sky bison and slowly floats down past a waterfall. It's this wonderful scene where we kind of get this perspective of them flying down. It's very soft beautiful reflective music as they have this conversation where Janora says she thinks Tenzin is mad at her and immediately Kaya is just like look your dad just has pride a little bruised that he can't see spirits like you can and Korra's like this is amazing that you can see this this is super lucky like you should be so like this is so awesome that you can do this and they support and encourage her which is this really beautiful empowering moment and I love that they are there for her when she is having this moment of doubt and I mean it's tough when you are a kid and you think that your parent is mad at you it's a really not fun place to be in and to have the perspective from family or close friends who know them I think is so important um I I don't know about you but I mean so much of when I was growing up I was super fortunate to have the perspective of my grandmother to be able to understand more of my parents because my parents met when they were very young And my grandmother knew both of them since they were younger. And by sharing stories and having that insight, being able to kind of say those things, I was able to further understand my parents and how they were feeling towards me, my own perspectives of them, just from hearing it from a close perspective uh, to them, uh, sharing it with me. Wow, that's a really cool cool, uh, perspective to get as a kid. Definitely helped me grow in a big way. Um, when you realize your parents are people, that's always a... Uh... <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I think that th- this is a very important moment for Janora to have. And again, it's like, I love that Kaya is being here for her. It just, it's so wonderful to see her in such a supportive role like this. Um, and I, I think, again, it's it really is, you see this connection of Kaya truly being Aang and Katara's daughter. Like so much of that love and consideration really comes through. Uh, in this moment and uh, as they kind of talk about avatar one you know janora's just like i didn't even get to meet the first avatar like what are they like was it a he was it a she and we hear cora talk about one and is like this sense of just pure reverence and awe where cora's just like he was incredible and i got to see the moment of when he became the first avatar and Janora pieces together that this is clearly the statue that she saw back in the Southern Air Temple when Korra opened the Southern Portal. We kind of saw a glimpse of this when Korra opened the portal. We saw a flash of a scene with Janora where this statue lit up and we saw this kind of like older Avatar statue and we kind of see the connections here. So I want to take a moment to talk about what I kind of wrote off as Three tales of stubbornness and pride. Uh, First and foremost, of course, we have Unalak abandoning his family to pursue his goal. Mako unwilling to give in or give up. And Tenzin's pride seen through the others. And just wanted to get some of your thoughts on these kind of like three different scenes that we had in this moment. 
how they all kind of center around this very similar theme. It's kind of interesting to see this because we all know, like you, we have moments in our lives in which we, you know, we stick to our guns, we we're stubborn about something, and and all that. But watching it in these such different scenarios, like Mako, it's you know, this dedication is giving him integrity. Uh, but this same dedication that gives him integrity is giving Unalak crazy thoughts. <laughs> like, so it's just fascinating to me to see how you know each of their um, convictions is playing in such different directions. And Tenzin's right now is not going in in a bad way just yet, but it hasn't found its way to what it needs to get to. So Unalak is very clearly bad. Mako's, we'd say, is objectively good. Tenzin's, it's still kind of finding how it's going to work here. Um, but I like that you you linked them all. I actually found, the more I think of it, I found this to be the most interesting part of this episode, is watching how each of their, you know, their determinations impacted their eventual fates. Mm, definitely. And I think it's, it's you know, and again, we, we've talked about this before. Book two has its flaws. But again, I think that there are very powerful, potent moments. And I think that just comes through in these uh, thematic through lines of characters and their development because that has always been avatar's greatest strength is the characters and we definitely see that through here so the spirits lead them to a secluded grove and they see ruins covered in vines and affected by the passing of time tenzin explains that this is an ancient airbending site and when janora says the energy the spiritual energy there feels off Tenzin replies that they will need to perform a cleansing ritual. And I love that he says this. He goes, dad taught it to me. And he kind of gets this excitement of uh, when he knows what to do. And I think it's it's great because it's this moment where he has felt so lost and astray. None of these solutions that he has used or none of these techniques or meditations has provided anything. And here's a moment where he understands and knows what to do. And it's this excitement to have this kind of direction with this purpose. And we see Tenzin airbend incense as the music slowly builds. And Boomy starts to give him crap, but Tenzin is absolutely in the zone. Even though they're kind of speaking up with all of this, we see this beautiful beautiful kind of moment where Tenzin kind of whispers that it's working. When suddenly dark spirits erupt out of the opening in the center of the ruins and they're all just panicking and everything. I love that Boomy is just like bats, evil bats. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then we see Cora uses the technique that she learned from Unalak to quell the spirits and put them at peace. After she does this, Tenzin laments that Unalak at least taught her something and he couldn't even get her into the spirit world. He kind of opens up and is vulnerable in this moment. And Korra takes this opportunity to give a heartfelt apology for abandoning him. And that she needs him now more than ever. Tenzin says that he is sure if they meditate there, they will be able to enter the spirit world. And Korra tells him to go first. Tenzin, looking up and hopeful, says, After all these years, my father's dream for me will finally come true. Aww. Even though this is short, I want to break this down really fast to look at the payoff of this honest moment of apologies and confessions between Tenzin and Korra. Because we started off this season, there was some tension. Clearly, Korra was not feeling great about Tenzin's approach to her training and with her uh, the spiritual training that he was doing. She wasn't feeling great about it. And it ended with Korra saying, forget you, Tenzin, forget you, Dad. I'm going to go with Unalak because he clearly has a solution to be able to fix this. And we saw where that ended up with everything. And now we kind of get that resolved a little bit. And the last thing is also the issue of Tenzin's final line. My father's dream for me will finally come true. I say issue because it's this idea of this obsession of Aang's dream for him. And how that can be problematic. It's so true. It's, it's a line that was so much more loaded than I, you know, than I had realized like about, it's like, I just imagine it's like this whole time it's been, his dream has been what he thought 
Aang's dream was for him. It was never. It doesn't seem like it's ever really been Tenzin's dream to do this. Like it's it's hard to decouple those two, whether or not it's a a, a fate imposed upon him or what he feels is his destiny. I feel like it, this line kind of complicates it, and just it just shows how complicated a situation it is that he's in, um, being this Airbender son of Aang, all that. And I think again, this idea of destiny comes back. I mean, let's think about another character that we know whose father imposed a vision for them of their destiny. It's a little bit different, but look at Zuko. His destiny that was given to him by his father, his father's dream for him was to find the Avatar. That's what drives him for so long, but it takes a long time for him to realize, and with the help of Uncle Iroh, that you make your own destiny and you have to make these choices. It's not just what others put on you. And I, I, I love that we get this. It's a, it's a different situation, but it rings with a lot of similarities. Definitely. Yeah. I, I, this is why I've like, I've come to appreciate this episode so much more. And to kind of uh, also kind of put a, a cap on this moment between Korra and Tenzin, I, I think it was a very important moment that we got to have between them that we get to have this apology from Cora. I also think that it shows how much already Cora has grown. Yes. For her to have this kind of moment of humility to put her feelings aside. And I think that it comes from seeing what she did. Clearly this affected her seeing this whole story of Juan because she is like, wow, I am like the, the, this is my issues that I was worried about in the first place. They are small and insignificant compared to what we are about to face. And I think it's what leads to this calm and understanding and knowing that she needs to kind of put these grievances aside to focus on what's to come. So back at Mako's apartment, Asami arrives to check in on him, suggests that maybe he take the night off to relax and go get something to eat. And... Uh, as they kiss, Beifang and the two schlub detectives <laughs> arrive. I love these dudes. <laughs> There's such beautiful archetypes, uh, uh, like stereotypes of like just like the lazy detectives. I'm, <laughs> like, I'm just thinking of the so Brooklyn Nine Nine, um, Hitchcock yes. and Scully. Every time I see these yes. two, <laughs> they truly—that's so on point. They really do have this. They have strong Hitchcock and Scully vibes. I love it. Oh my god. Also, constantly eating things too. Oh, it's so true. Oh my gosh. Oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna drop a comparisons page later. <laughs> oh my god. So uh, they all confront Mako about his involvement with the triple threats for the sting operation, which Mako readily confesses. He's like, "Look, okay, I I did use them. It was for a sting operation. I'm sorry I went behind your back." And, uh, but when they say it was Mako who helped them steal products from future industries. He's like, whoa, you're going to believe criminals over me? And Beifong's like, hey, we had a lead. We have to follow up on it. And that's when they find cash and explosives in his apartment. Mako believes that they were planted and they still cuff him and take him away. And Asami is starting to see this as Mako is kind of yelling off, it's Varric, it's Varric. <laughs> it's this, again, wonderful, like, cop detective, like, archetype of just like, it's them. They're the ones setting me up. This isn't me. <laughs> <laughs> but it's showing how well Varric is playing this game. Like, he has clearly planted the evidence here in Mako's apartment because, you know, uh, he is able to kind of make this whole, even like the police force and the very wheels of justice turn against him, even when Mako is trying to stick to them in the end. I, I still want a Varric centric story at some point <laughs> or just like a, a like a retelling of this from his perspective, because the, the evil genius mind that he clear. Well, I won't say evil genius, the. Neutral chaos genius mind that he has is <laughs> is amazing because you get to it's like as soon as you see this you're like oh Varric totally did it it's like 
And it's yeah. also just scary <laughs> when you realize how much power Varric has to be able to plant things, get an ear with Beifong. Ooh, yeah. Mm-hmm. That she would question her own detective. Absolutely. And I mean, to be honest, it is a it is a byproduct of what we see as the world is modernizing here in the Avatar world. It is the influence of corporations and like business entities on the world as a whole, which we hadn't really seen in Avatar before then. I mean, we're especially in Korra, you know, we see with future industries, we see how much uh, you know, uh, Hiroshi Sato helps Aman in the first season. And now we're seeing like war profiteering and like influence in terms of like, you know, funding wars and profiting off of the, it, There's so much that we're starting to see as a modern world pops up. We're starting to see a lot of those modern issues and problems that can kind of come from that. So, we transition back to the meditation site. Tenzin is still unable to enter the spirit world. We get this moment where Bo- Boomy pokes him with the stick. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, Tenzin just angrily airbends it away. And as Tenzin is stubbornly trying to still do this, Kaya finally confronts him and tells him to his face, okay, look, you need to stop being so stubborn. And it is not your destiny to guide the Avatar, but I think it's Jinora's. Tenzin proclaims that he is trained, studied, and prepared for all the dangers of the spirit world, and that Jinora is not ready. And he is kind of responding to Kaya calling him out. But then when Jinora steps up to him and tells him herself that she can do it, that's when he finally listens. And I, I think it's this important moment where it, it takes Jinora having this agency because clearly she's kind of been stepping back from this you know she was afraid uh, to kind of speak up at all in the first place and now you know understanding thinking that her dad is upset with her it's the importance of that scene with kaya earlier of kaya being like look your dad is just he had his pride bruised it's okay what you were doing is great and it is having that support from kaya from cora that Janora is able to step up and say this to Tenzin. And I just, I, I love it. It is such a beautiful supportive moment. And I think it's a wonderful kind of little mini lesson to kind of take from all of this. Because especially you think about it, you know, if you're like a young kid, especially a young girl, you are hearing somebody say like, you cannot do this. Or, you know, this is, this is something that I have trained to do. This is something that I need to do. I mean, it is a little bit of a metaphor, a little bit for the patriarchy. Oh, yeah. I don't know, like, you know, to a hundred percent, but like, I mean, it definitely has those echoes to it that you have Tenzin, this, you know, adult man who is saying all of this, like, Hey, this is my responsibility. This is like, I need to do this. And I don't think that it's a coincidence that it is Kaya telling Janora girl, you got this, you can do this. And Janora taking that and moving forward to say to Tenzin, I can do this. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's such a good point. That's why I, I really like the character development that went in on this uh, side of things in this episode, which is a side note. Having just seen the movie Moxie, I feel like that explains this. <laughs> it's a great analog for this. But um, yeah, I love that Janora went from just playing with spirits at the start to being confident that she can handle the spirit world. So Korra and Jinora meditate and they enter the spirit world. We see giant lily pad trees stretch out towards a white sky as they look on in awe. But then we cut to Unalak, who stands before the Tree of Time in Vatu, where Unalak confesses that he has failed him and that the Avatar is dead. And Vatu tells him from behind the threshold that even though their link was severed, he can still sense Rava and that the Avatar is alive, that she will come to him because she is now in the spirit world. And this is where the episode ends. And before we kind of get into overall discussion, looking at this last section, again, Mako getting set further set up and Tenzin realizing that it won't be him to enter the spirit world. 
What are some of your thoughts kind of on these last few scenes? The, the experience that Tenzin went through, I feel like, I mean, for him too, was a, like such an emotional roller coaster in all this. But I'm happy that I think he realized in the end that his destiny was still to pass on Aang's teachings and have his daughter help the Avatar in this particular way. So like he finally came full circle to, I think, understanding how his destiny was being shaped here and how he was shaping it. Um, and Mako, oh man, the Varric one. It's just one of those things where like with that, I feel like this episode was really just another nail in the, oh, sh- don't, don't screw with Varric. <laughs> Leave that dude <Yes>. alone. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, so uh, as we kind of look at this episode overall, um, we kind of reached out to uh, folks on our Discord uh, to kind of get some thoughts. And we got to hear from uh, one of our folks on our Discord, Slayer, uh, who said, because uh, we kind of reached out, what are some of your thoughts on this episode? And I, I definitely want to approach uh, kind of you know some of these uh, comments and critiques and just kind of seeing where it, where it comes from and how this kind of can apply to it. So Slayer said, I personally found this episode kind of bland. Granted, season two is my least favorite season of Legend of Korra. He said, the only thing I liked about it was the Mako and Varric subplot and Mako getting framed. Um, he says, I kind of wish they addressed Varric's actions later in later seasons instead of just a brief one-off line in book three. Uh, also, is it just me or does the art style in season two look different? Um, so to kind of address a few of these things, I definitely think that there's some valid points to be brought up with this. I think at a surface level, it can kind of feel a little lackluster compared to the kind of epicness that we just got from beginnings to go to this episode. But I think that, you know, as we kind of dove into this and discuss, I think a lot of this ends up being just, it's a lot of subtle character moments. And it's, I, I think, comes from a deep dive look into it. But I think as a surface look to it, you know, it's not necessarily as the most exciting episode. So I can understand that. Um, and I definitely agree with the Mako and Varric subplot. Really wonderful. Um, and I definitely agree that I wish we kind of got a little bit more. I mean, look, we could all ask. We all could just get a little bit more Varric and be better <laughs> for it in the world. <laughs> they just need to do the thing. <laughs> And as far as the art style looking different, yes. I mean, there there's actually, they switched to a different animation studio for this season. Um, so there was a lot of kind of changes. And th- this is also where there was a lot kind of being tested out in terms of how they were going to move forward. Book two, there was a lot of uh, testing and a lot of kind of them kind of wading through the waters before they really kind of stick the landing with book three, um, which I think they had to do and they had to kind of explore. Um, and I think that, you know, the art style definitely has a different look to it for this as well. But uh, do you have any kind of thoughts and reactions to that, Kevin? Oh, the, I, like you said, like not the most exciting episode the wrong, but if anyone knows me, I love the, the episodes that build character plot. Uh, or build characters and and, ha- and further along the plot. I mean, they had a lot to unpack from beginnings and core missing. Like th- they needed an episode that then weaved everything back together to then set everything on its course for later. Um, but it wasn't just a you know it's not a filler episode by any means. Um, but I really enjoyed. I have to say, I really enjoyed watching Tenzin's arc um, a lot more on this run through. I feel like watching his character building in this particular episode was just fascinating and just how he let you know he let his pride go in the end to finally help you know his daughter realize her destiny absolutely and i do love that it was kaya who really brought up this point of destiny in this and i i I do really enjoy the way that you know we again we see the journey of Janora going from playing with spirits to confidently, uh, you know, telling her father that she can do this. And we see the journey of Tenzin, you know, having this moment of vindication that he was right all along to the expectation of his journey, bringing him here, his destiny, and then putting that aside and coming to terms with, what he thought was going to be his destiny was in fact his daughter's. And I think in a way, as he will kind of realize too, 
so much of the way that he has taught Jinora and those lessons that he has passed on, that is not wasted. And I think that that is like the important thing to remember as he kind of sees this. Because it's easy to say, well, I've trained all of this time. Was it all for all for nothing? And clearly it's not. Because Jinora learned very well under his tutelage. So true. It's, it's one of those things I think about once in a while is that sometimes our legacy isn't always the things that we do. Sometimes it's what we then pass on. And that was Tenzin's lesson here. Well said. All right, guys. Well, that is going to conclude our discussion of episode nine from book two, The Guide. Um, I, I'm excited because I found a really wonderful still that I think really encapsulates uh, this episode. And it is the moment where Jinora is pointing forward. Tenzin looks back, confused. Korra looking, to, uh, looking on as well, kind of excited. And I think it really kind of uh, captures this episode in a big way. Um, so uh, thank you all so much for tuning in. Thank you, Kevin, for joining me uh, for discussion tonight. Thanks for having me on as always. Um, so remember, folks, uh, you can uh, find us on all those good social medias. I just want to do a uh, kind of specific quick shout out uh, to our Twitter. Um, uh, Susan is going to be helming our Twitter from here on out. So uh, she is going to uh, be the one uh, kind of chatting you guys up on Twitter there. So if you haven't already, go ahead and follow us on Twitter at Portalcast Pod. We are on Facebook and Instagram at Legend of Portalcast. And you, of course, can visit our website to learn more at legendofportalcast.com where you can listen to all of our episodes or find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher to be able to listen to it there. Um, you can also reach out to us at legendofportalcast at gmail.com or to join in on the conversation with us. You can join our Discord. Uh, you can find the link in the show notes for that. Uh, we've been having some wonderful conversations. We'd love to have you in on it. And we would love to be able to hear from you because we're going to be doing more of these kind of uh, questions and discussions feedback. So if you want some of your thoughts on the upcoming episodes to be included in our discussion, be sure to join us on the Discord and take a look out for our announcements there. We'll be shouting out before we record every single time to hear what you guys have to say. And a big shout out to Slayer. Thank you so much for uh, your input and for uh, giving us uh, your comment to be able to add to our discussion as well. Uh, we're looking forward to hearing more from all of you and discussing the rest of the season. Um, but until then, and until next time, everyone, let us leave. Let us leave.